Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Day two, day two of our six-day voyage across the NBA season win totals preview section. Did the Pacific Division on Monday. We've got the Northwest Division coming up today. Those who break down the lines set, and I would hope we can talk a few of you into maybe dropping a little coin on a couple of season win total wagers. I know it's not fantasy basketball. That probably means that many of you are just going to abandon ship on us here. But I would ask you, don't do it. Come on. Come on, don't do it. (laughs) We've had such an amazing offseason together, and at a certain point, there's just like... Not really fantasy stuff to talk about anymore. We'll get there. Don't worry, we'll get there. I am Dan Vespers. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a sports ethos presentation. We're doing a little sojourn into sports betting week here on the pod, and I want to dive right into the Northwest Division. Again, working from the biggest number down the board in each division as we go through this thing. We'll do the uh, Southwest tomorrow, and we'll move over to the Eastern Conference on Thursday, Friday, and then next Monday. And then we'll just be basically one show away from Yahoo releasing their ADP data, I believe. We'll see if anything changes. We'll also take a look uh, as these these days, these weeks piddle along uh, and see if Yahoo makes any adjustments to their board, certainly anything marked or notable. You know me, I got my eye on a few key guys, and uh, if they start jumping around, then I'll look at the whole board. In any event, hopefully something like that will surface between now and next Wednesday. If it doesn't, we'll find something. Don't worry. There's always something to talk about. But I really do like these season win totals. I think you could hear it in yesterday's podcast. It was just fun for me to talk about something that wasn't kind of grinding on fantasy for another week when there just wasn't anything that we needed to do in the moment. For those that are uninitiated or perhaps missed yesterday's podcast, season win totals is a, it's a bet. It's sports betting, which is again becoming much more prevalent. It's something that I've done a lot over the years, where the line is the number of wins a team is expected to get during the regular season. It is a bet that a lot of people don't like because it forces you to have money tied up from October through April, which from a, an actual like money management standpoint makes it kind of complicated you know, if you're if a unit, one small wager for you is like five or ten dollars, then to have six, seven, eight, nine, ten units, whatever it happens to be, tied up for six months, that's gonna be a pretty good chunk of your bankroll. But we dive in because I believe that in the grand scheme of things, these wagers where you're not so reliant on one little tiny hiccup any given day actually does make them a little bit more predictable in the long run. Last year, it went 15-15, and 15, which was a low watermark for us. That's very upsetting because it meant we lost the VIG if you bet all 30 teams, which you didn't because the our top bets still were profitable. I'm just pissed because leading up to that, uh, we went 18-12, and tw- uh, no, 19-11, and 20-10, and 18-12, and 12, going backwards through the previous three years. So last year was the, f- the first time in four tries where we haven't had a really big winner even betting all 30 
I'll get back on the good foot today. Northwest Division, Denver Nuggets, 49.5, the biggest number on the board in that division. And I feel like I'm being suckered because 49.5 is like how a restaurant would price an item or how a store would price an item if they didn't want you to say it was 50 bucks and they wanted you to buy it feeling like you were buying something for 40 bucks. So I feel like I'm getting suckered a little bit, but I like the over on the Nuggets basically on a few key factors. I know what you're all saying. I already know the key factors, and you're right, because they are named Jamal and Michael in particular. Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. missed basically all of last season. Jamal did miss all of last season. Michael Porter Jr. played in a handful of games, wasn't himself because he had a back issue, and then missed the rest of the season after that. Nikola Jokic carried the team to 48 wins in an 82-game season without his second and third best players on the board, on the team, excuse me, especially after you look back to the previous year when Michael Porter Jr. was just starting to emerge and the Nuggets won 47 out of 72 games, which if you just left that intact, the roster's changed a little bit since then, but if you just left that roster largely intact, that team would have won 53 games in an 82-game season, which would go way over this number. You've got what I assume would be a better iteration of Michael Porter Jr., although we don't know how many games he's going to play. Jamal Murray probably won't be playing all 82, but he didn't play all eight, 72 in that year where they won uh, 47 ball games. Remember, he got hurt late that year, missed, I think, about the last month or so. The Murray-Jokic pick-and-roll is nuts. The reason I feel like I'm getting suckered is that Nikola Jokic hasn't really been hurt. Kind of ever. You could make the argument that he doesn't jump very much, so that takes a little bit of the strain off his lower body. You could make the argument that he's a little bit plush, and that maybe that takes a little bit of the strain off of his entire body. You know, he ends every ball game with like 15 bright pink welts. <laughs> it's kind it's a little hilarious. I can laugh about it because I, too, am a pasty human being. And if I get whapped in the arm by somebody, it's probably going to turn bright pink also. You can always see the little scratches on Jokic, all the little bumps and bruises. But he doesn't miss games. Is this the year Jokic misses a handful of games? Because if so, suddenly that number seems much more reasonable. A, a Denver team where Jokic plays 62 games instead of mid to high 70s probably doesn't get to 53 wins. He's kind of there everything. Could they just fall into a couple wins without him on the on the healthy for, you know, let's say three or four weeks? Yeah, but you'd need big games out of Murray and Michael Porter Jr. One thing the, the Nuggets did that I liked this offseason was they turned Will Barton and Monte Morris into Contavious Caldwell-Pope and a different backup point guard. But basically turning Will Barton into KCP is a much better fit for the Nuggets with their offensive studs healthy. Barton was important-ish, important-ish, for any game where the Nuggets maybe needed someone else to go try to do something on offense. which wasn't many. But with Murray back and with MPJ back, Barton's completely superfluous in his sort of inefficient ways. He gave them a lot of good years. Will the Thrill, I know everybody loved it. But from an actual basketball win-loss standpoint, he wasn't really adding much to the team. 
who's a low-efficiency scorer who, fantasy-wise, could do stuff across the board but then completely disappear. And his, he was one of those guys where the stats probably looked a little bit better than the actual performance in a way that with KCP, the stats probably are worse than the actual performance. He's going to be a higher percentage, higher efficiency, better defense player that fits in really nicely next to Jokic and Murray and Porter Jr. And Aaron Gordon was also actually a really good fit with that team. Suddenly, that team can actually play a little bit of defense. Not a ton, but a little bit. Jokic is never going to be an anchor on defense the way that like a Rudy Gobert might be. We'll talk about him on the next team here. But like position defense, Jokic can kind of be in the right place enough to slow them down. Murray's not going to be great there, but Gordon's pretty good. Athletic. KCP's pretty good on defense. All is not lost with this Nuggets team on the defensive side of the basketball. All is not lost. So anyway, the Nuggets. 49.5 is the number. I'm going to lean to the over, feeling like I'm getting suckered, but I like them to get into the low 50s and wins. If Jokic stays healthy, it feels like they should get there. Minnesota Timberwolves, 47.5. And that feels like a pretty dang big number, although we can look back at this last year and note that they did have 46 wins with kind of a fairly young team. Cat isn't ultra young anymore, but a fairly young team that's just kind of beginning to find their way together. The Chris Finch offense and slightly better defense. Pat Beverly did play a role in that, and he's gone now. But of course, the big story around the Wolves is that they traded a bunch of stuff, mostly picks, but also Pat Bev, Jared Vanderbilt, who had become kind of an extra piece for a team with Jaden McDaniels. For Rudy Gobert. This is typically the kind of situation I would fade in a season win total. Teams bringing on a very high-profile player tend to need a bunch of time to acclimate to one another. It's, it's really one of my tried-and-true season win total plays. But that is typically built on high-usage big-name players changing teams, where you're trying to figure out who's actually going to be doing stuff with the basketball, what kind of offensive flow will there be, and then, you know, it's less so about a big-name player on defense, but when there's a lot of turnover, defense tends to suffer as well because you have the one guy that kind of runs the defense on a team, and then everybody else has to figure out what their roles are. This situation actually feels a tiny bit different to me because you're adding a very high profile player who never touches the basketball or certainly didn't on his last team the jazz did everything in their power not to throw the ball to rudy gobert unless he was literally like head touching the net if he could just reach up over his head and kind of reach around drop the basketball through the hoop and it would plunk right off the top of his dome that's when they would throw him the ball otherwise they weren't touch they weren't getting it to him Four or five feet away, that was too far. I don't know what the Wolves have in store in terms of like an offensive identity now because Cat slides down to the four, which is a, a very weird twin tower tandem going on. Wolves are going to have to figure out how to deal with that on defense. They're now a just a massive, massive team. 
it's not entirely clear who's going to play at each spot on the floor. They got Torian Prince. He might slot in as the three. McDaniels might slot in as, as the three. That makes them truly colossal. But those guys could spread the floor a little bit. Anthony Edwards then would slide down to the two. D'Angelo Russell plays the one. They they got a few options, but they're all a little bit a little bit askew. The reason I'm not going hard on the under is that I do believe the Wolves becoming a honest powerhouse on defense, but a really good defensive team, which Rudy Gobert can kind of do by himself. Not so much in the playoffs. Teams are exploiting the issues there. But during a long regular season, he can completely change what other teams get in their offensive sets. Just pushes everyone farther away. So suddenly now, Anthony Edwards, we know he can D up a little bit. If they play Prince or McDaniels, those guys can D up. D'Angelo Russell, not great on defense, but he ought to be good enough at the point guard spot. And he's kind of big enough, so that should help a little bit. And then Cat, who's not as great on defense, is no longer the anchor at the back end. The Wolves now have the communicator, the defensive player of the year, to change the way... I mean, the, the, the guy to put everyone there where they need to be. That was probably, or at least supposed to be Cat last year. It's usually the big man. But it might have been Patrick Beverly just yelling at people from the perimeter. I, I don't actually know for sure. Maybe that's something I should have looked up. Whoops, bad podcast. But overall, I'm actually going to slide towards the over. I think the Wolves have a plan. I think they made this trade with an idea in mind of how they were going to deploy Gobert and the rest of the bodies on their team. Offensively, it's going to take some getting used to, but I think the fact that they'll play good defense right from day one is going to cover that up. So I'll go slightly over on the Wolves, but they have a tenuous grasp on that over. Next one in the Northwest... Portland Trailblazers at 40 and a half. I'm, I'm very public in the Northwest Division in a way that I don't think I really was in the Pacific Division. We went under on Phoenix. We went under on the Warriors. We went over on the Kings. I think I was anti-public in probably three out of the four actual plays we talked about on yesterday's show. And I think I'm public perhaps on all five today. Although I guess I don't know which direction the public's going to go on the Blazers. The number is 40 and a half, and I like the over again. For the third time in a row, I like the over. This one is a fool me once, shame on me kind of thing, and it's basically the Damian Lillard rule, which for many years, I kept trying to predict the season that the Blazers would finally say, ugh, and just have a crapper year. Now, ultimately, that turned, about to be, turned out to be this last season, but that was because Dame had a, the core issue. He had to have surgery, and that finished off his year. He tried to play through it because he's Dame, and he plays through almost everything, but you could see he had no lift. His field goal percent was down. His free throw count was down. Everything was down, down, down. And finally, he was like, okay, this isn't working. We're not winning ball games, so what am I even doing here? What I'm talking about are all those years, it was like 2017 to 2020, where the Blazers had been completely hamstrung by horrible four-year, very large deals they gave to, frankly, repeated, not-great wings 
Remember all those contracts? They gave out contract after contract, like four years, $60 million a year to almost everybody that would take one. And they just had no wiggle room left to expand, to do anything beyond finding a way to trade for Yusuf Nurkic because the the Nuggets just had to get rid of one of their two centers and they knew Jokic was uh, an MVP-level guy, so Nurk was expendable even though he was also pretty good. But all those years, Portland had... I don't even remember if Nurk was there yet. Portland had Dame and CJ and just, like, refuse. And every year... They couldn't do anything in the offseason because they had no salary cap to work with. They had no cash, and those contracts were just piddling along. They had, they had no way to get rid of them. It was, it was so ugly. I felt so bad for Blazers fans and, frankly, for Dame and CJ because they came in every year going, oh, this again. And every year I kept saying, okay, this is the year that Dame walks into the room and goes, not again, and finally just says, nah. And every year... Dame said, nope, not doing it. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to find a way to get better. I'm going to improve my field goal percent. I'm going to extend my range. I'm going to hit more free throws. I'm going to shoot 94.1% from the line. I'm going to hit four threes again. Like, every year, he somehow got better on offense. And every year, he just willed that crap dink roster into the lower mid-pack of the Western Conference playoffs. And every year, he gave some team in the playoffs a run for their money, sometimes upsetting them in the process. Remember the shot over Paul George? Hilarious and historic all at once. And every year, they hit the over on their season win total marks. Until this last year when Dame got hurt. So for me, my Blazers handicap is basically as simple as, I think Dame is healthy this year. I don't mind that McCollum is gone. Uh, Anthony Simon slots into that role pretty well, although they do get smaller. Not like the defense was any good to begin with, but they get smaller. And at the same time, they have Josh Hart, who can play the three. They have Jeremy Grant, now a stretch four, a legitimate, like, good stretch four type. The guy they've been looking for for five years, finally there. Nurk re-signed. If he can stay healthy, that'd be really useful. I just kind of like the fact that it looks different in Portland. But not different in a so much turnover that no one's going to be able to figure out who needs to stand where kind of way. Different in a finally they brought in some versatility. Simon's floor spacer, good shooter. No, he can't create quite the way that... Uh, in a, well, you know what? That's not fair. He creates in a different way than McCollum could. He's smaller. Josh Hart, not an offensive threat so much. Floor spacer, but great rebounding guard, good defensively. Jeremy Grant, he can do everything. And now he slots back into a second-slash-third fiddle role where he, frankly, belonged all along. But Portland, or Detroit, rather, gave him a whole bunch of money. And then Nurk, who hasn't really been healthy in years, and maybe this will be the one. But, you know, bleep it. I don't even care if Nurk is all that healthy this year. It'll be helpful. This is Dame. Dame's going to get this team to 500. That's all they need to do to break this number. I believe they will. They don't want to miss the playoffs two years in a row. Lillard will make sure they don't. 500 ball club, maybe a game or two above that. Play in tournament, maybe. But either way, they're not going to have an opportunity to rest anybody. And that is good for us as well, which means we're going to expect Dame in the 68-plus games territory. Over. Yep. Public as hell. I don't actually know what the public side is on the Utah Jazz because it's a really low number at 32.5, but I am liking the under. 
And this is one that, remember we talked on yesterday's show about sort of an arbitrage idea with the Los Angeles Lakers. With the Jazz, it's similar but different. Let me explain myself. With the Lakers, I liked the idea of the over early, even though I don't like them to actually win many ball games because I figure they're going to make a trade. The season win total number is going to bounce, and then you can play the under after that, which is frankly what I would have done all along with L.A., but now you can set up a middle. With the Jazz, the problem with that idea is that you would then expect them to clear the secondary mark, meaning the arbitrage here, you'd play the under early, and if Utah makes a trade to unload Donovan Mitchell and goes into full tank mode, do we see Mike Conley get traded? Bogdanovich, could he get traded? Do they all end up on the Lakers (laughs) creating a double arbitrage? Here's the thing. If all those guys get traded, the Jazz are going into full tank, and then you're talking about a number that it kind of doesn't matter how low they move it. They're probably still shooting for an under. You don't want... Here's, an, here's a very old-fashioned betting idea that I would recommend you guys adopt. You never want a bet to hit more than the players or the staff involved want it to hit. That's not to say that the Jazz would care about, quote, hitting an over, but if you're rooting for them to win more than their fan base and their front office are rooting for them to win, you're not holding a good ticket. So that's why I like the Jazz under, because you've got a few... Like, that's one where you take the under and then you let it ride. First of all, in a difference to my my Lakers suggestion yesterday, I actually think the Jazz do go under 32.5, even if they keep Donovan Mitchell, because without Rudy Gobert, they're horrible. We saw it last year. When Gobert wasn't on the floor for Utah, they were a mess. They couldn't defend anybody. The screen setting was bad, and they at least they had Giganticus on Whiteside at that point. They had nobody to do their team, their their full team-wide rebounding job. Like all these little dudes that have never had to go back and collect a rebound suddenly were being asked to do it or let Whiteside try to go get them. And I know that Hassan is not the center they're going to be building around here, but, I mean, they don't really have a workable center right now. So do they go stretch mode and just try to score? Okay, maybe, but they don't really have an interior threat. How do you space the floor around Rudy Gobert if there's no one in the middle to clean things up? Certainly not in the way that he did. The Jazz are horrible without Rudy Gobert, which I believe is why they're so strongly considering a full teardown. They don't have... Like, they're now very much in the middle. They're going to be a team that's fighting for a play-in spot and probably missing it, which doesn't get you a top pick in what's set to be a terrific upcoming draft and doesn't inspire the players on the team, doesn't inspire the fan base in a massive way. So what are you doing at that point? This is why I think the Jazz probably do blow it up. They have so many picks. It behooves them to go get more and try to make it a quicker rebuild with just a bunch of firsts or hell. The other move here, which, you know, anything is possible, I guess, is the Jazz go use all these picks they just got to go get a good player. I just don't see that happening. So I like the Jazz to stay under this number, even if they don't make any moves. But certainly if they do blow things up, then you're pretty much a lock. 
Then you got the under hauled in perfectly, and you don't even have to worry about it. Bing, bang, boom. I don't know if that's a public play or not, but I like the under on Utah. And then Oklahoma City Thunder at 26.5, one of the lowest numbers on the board. Well, this one, I have a little bit of pause. Because the Thunder should tank this year. They should. From a player personnel standpoint, if they if they played all of their young guys for an entire season, they would go over. But I don't think they will. And the reason I feel that way is... They're, they're not good enough yet for that to be the right move. If they played all of their guys and cleared 26 and a half wins, what does that actually do for the team other than move them out of the bottom three? Then they'd be like the fifth or sixth worst team in the NBA. And so now suddenly your lottery odds aren't as good. Victor Wembanyama is in the draft this season. He's the next, like, franchise-changing player. You're going to see anybody that isn't good enough to compete for a title throw the year. You'll probably see more tanking this season than we have in many, many years because of the chance of scoring that number one pick. So if you're the Thunder, I know you probably want to go back and tell Shea Gilgis-Alexander, this is the year we're going to try to win some games, but I do... I feel like you kind of need to just tell them, wait one more year. And then whatever happens after that, you play the young guys, you use your 95 picks to go bring in a couple of veterans, maybe use cap space to bring in some veterans, whatever it is you want to do. 2023 to 24, that's a year you work on competing. This is a year, and look, I mean, you can look at this last season as a grade. You needed to be 24 wins or less to be in the bottom three. So if you're grading it on that same curve and you think a team is in full tank mode, which I think you've got to believe the Thunder should be, the Pistons should be, the Rockets should be, the Spurs should be, the Magic maybe. You know, they just got a one, so perhaps they try to do a little bit more. At least four or five teams are almost a, are almost a guaranteed tank. Which means there are going to be even more teams that need to try to lose. Can't screw around right now. Not when so much a player of, you know, we don't know exactly how good he's going to be. Let's say that he's like, we're not going to say LeBron, because everyone's going to say, oh, this is the, the franchise-changing player. Let's say that Wembenyana turns out to be like, uh, and I'm not talking about his exact game. I'm just talking about like an impact on a team. Let's say that he turns out to be like, KD level, which right now is, you know, more important than LeBron, but that's more an age thing than a skill thing. Or let's say that he turns out to be Russell Westbrook level. Not now, but when he was really good. This is a guy that teams can't risk missing. Someone that can turn a bad team into a 35 or 40 win team potentially by himself is what we're talking about here. 
these teams are going to lose and lose and lose some more. And so if you're in that four or five cluster that I just described of teams that should really need to and want to lose this year, they know they can't go over 24 wins or they risk falling out of that bottom three. So I'll go under on Oklahoma City and we'll put a stamp on the Northwest Division. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Dan Vespers. This was day two, episode 92 of the offseason. Southwest Division tomorrow and our season win total week here on Fantasy NBA Today. Have a great Tuesday, everybody. And we'll talk to you guys first thing Wednesday morning. So long.